0: Our scripture passage comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, as we read verses 17 through 28. Here are now the word of God. <clears throat> and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say to these two sons of mine. Say, say that these two sons of mine are to sit. One at your right hand and one at your left In your kingdom, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand. And now my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by the father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the, gen- the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you use this text today to shape us, to make us willing, to be those who serve, and eager to be a blessing to others. Would you remove from us any worldly ambition or any desire to be made much of? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when I was a teenager, I was, I was helping to lead a weekly Bible study. And one of the things that we wanted to be able to do was we wanted to be able to sing some songs. So out of necessity, I got a, a cheap guitar. I still remember it was a black, very, very cheap guitar. Um, and I decided that I would just learn to play a few chords Um, Bob Dylan says all you need is a red guitar three chords and the truth and my plan was to do that with a black guitar and when I first got this guitar I didn't even know how to play a chord and I didn't have anyone around me who was able to teach me how to play guitar and so I just started as my own teacher and I walked around the house just plucking that D string and then figuring out the frets. And so I think my parents probably lost their mind that first day because all they heard was me just going ding, 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 ding on this one string because I had no idea how to play a guitar. Um, And, you know, I guess I can imagine how playing one string over and over again would get a little old. Listen to this. Matthew Henry says that his suffering was the string that Jesus harped upon most, though in the ear of his disciples, it sounded very harsh and unpleasing. Um, Jesus had a guitar with one string. Suffering, suffering, suffering. And for Jesus, suffering was the reason he came. It was the path he was walking. It was the destination of his whole life. The whole point of what is happening here in these three sections that we're going to look at today is that Jesus is driving to home to his disciples that if they want to be his followers, they must be prepared to follow him in the suffering. And so let's look at these three points. Uh, The first is the end. The second is the resistance. And then the third is the way. So the end, the resistance and the way. Um, the first section is, is verses 17 to 19. It's I'm calling it the end, even though it's funny. It's the beginning of our passage. Um, it's the end. And the reason is because when you read these verses, the thing you come away with is this appreciation that Jesus is always playing the long game. He's trying to bring his disciples into that long game as well, isn't he? Um, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you relate to this. Uh, if any of you watched the TV show Lost back, back when it was good. Um, but Aaron and I were fans when the show Lost first came out. We loved the first few seasons and we stopped watching at a certain point after a few seasons because it started to feel like this isn't going anywhere. They're just trying to make me watch, but they don't have a, they don't have a story to tell. And so we just we just fell off. And then later on, like 10 years after the show was completely done, I was reading an interview with the showrunner. That's just the person who's in charge of the whole show. And he totally admitted they had no idea where they were going every single time that they got to a season. They were like, what are we going to do now? And they never knew how they were going to end the show. And you could tell. Um, And the problem, as I was listening to this, I thought the problem is they don't have the end in sight. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. They're just living moment to moment. And. And because of that, the product was was bad. Here's the real contrast to that sort of unplanned, spontaneous path. In comparison to these guys, Jesus always has the end before him. It's how he lives. And he never allows himself to deviate from that. He never forgets where he's going. He is single-minded and determined. He always holds on to what's coming. And he does it with grit and he does it with resolve. What does he tell his disciples? He tells them what has to happen to him. He says see, we are going up to Jerusalem. He introduces this as something that isn't just for him, right? He tells his followers, we are going to Jerusalem. You are going to be part of what happens. They're included in this. In other words, his suffering is their suffering. And then he tells them this. He says the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. He is he is expressing a highly specific understanding of what's coming. And and he is right, because in order for Jesus to be executed, the Jews would have to turn Jesus over to the Romans. The Jews have no legal right to execute a person. They are under the jurisdiction of Rome. Rome has to be the one to execute someone. And not only that, Jesus gives them more information than he needed to. He could have just said, and they will kill him. But instead he lets them know that the experience that's coming runs deeper than that. It's, it's not just death. It's that he's going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He's, he's giving them de- more details, not less. What is coming is public humiliating the death of a non-citizen slave. The sort of thing that Rome would do to someone they were putting them in their place and showing them just how low they were. It was meant to be a public lesson for everybody, a public humiliation, obvious physical agony. He tells them the truth and, and all of these things, he says, strike terror into the disciples. we, are going to Jerusalem for all of these things. We are doing this. He's already repeated this, these things over and over. And so in Mark's gospel, when he tells the same story that we're reading here in Matthew, Mark adds, those who followed were afraid. It's very important that we understand the death of Jesus. We need to think of Jesus not as a martyr. Jesus was not a martyr. He was not ultimately a victim. He was not ultimately betrayed or, be, or beguiled or tricked, even though those things took place in, in, the, in, the, in the chain of events. But he goes to Jerusalem with full knowledge of what's coming. He, he could turn around. He, he, he knows what's coming. And so this is a moment where he, he has every reason to turn around, and yet he doesn't. And he says it so often over and over before he arrives that nobody could say, well, you know, this, this plan, his plan was to live a long life, but he just got tricked. One of the things that's often said by, by Muslims is that Jesus could not be God. And the reason Jesus could not be God is because no one could ever prevail upon God to kill him or to take his life. So for in Islam... This is one of the supreme proofs that Christianity isn't true and can't be true because God is so high and exalted that what the Christians claim is just impossible. And yet here's the problem, and this is a bit of a dilemma, I think. Muslims claim Jesus is a prophet, they do. They they do deny that the crucifixion of Jesus took place. And that belief of theirs runs headlong into the fact That in Jesus' own prophecies and in his own predictions, he said they will condemn him to death and he will be crucified. They can't call the man a prophet and then deny the truth of his words. They can't say he was a prophet, but also that he wasn't crucified. I think Muslims should listen to Jesus' words here. Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, the son of God, he claimed, spoke truthfully And really was crucified, not because of any weakness in God, but because as fully man, he intentionally was made capable of suffering. The suffering came upon him, but it came upon him by his own choice out of a love for those he saved. The point Matthew wants us to see here is that Jesus sees his crucifixion as essential to his life essential to his ministry and essential to the whole reason he came and lived among us as the God man. And that this isn't just essential for Jesus. This is essential for us. We needed a savior who would die for our sins because we could never wash it away ourselves. And each of us, we are invited with every breath we draw to trust in the savior And and he promises that if we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved too. Jesus takes every step toward Jerusalem with calculated care. Every single step took him to a destination that he fully understood. What was that destination? It was the destination of self-sacrifice. In verse 28, we see the big picture Jesus is being driven by to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to come back to this in a moment, but that is our first point. As Jesus walks, he does it with determination and he does it with the full knowledge of what he's doing. He has his eyes on the end and he wants his disciples to have their eyes on the end. (coughs) The second point is the resistance, um, you know, all of which what we've just seen might sound like very straightforward Christian theology, right? Something that we maybe even take for granted. Of course, Jesus had to die and rise again. If you've been around the church for long enough, then we might be tempted to take it for granted. But, but in the moment, it was not something the disciples took for granted. It wasn't something they accepted at all. This was something that the disciples Resisted, and they openly resisted it. You know, we think of Jesus experiencing resistance in his life. We, we know his life was full of hardship. We know that he was a poor man, a carpenter, a hard worker. But what's so disappointing is the source of the resistance here because it doesn't come from Jesus's enemies. Instead, it comes from those men who are supposed to be following him. We often, we often see this, this, the second point here, happens sandwiched between two other speeches by Jesus about what it means to follow him and be a disciple. So Jesus gives a speech about what it means to follow him. What does it mean to follow him? To go to Jerusalem where I'm going to die. And then he has an instance like this. Discipleship means following Jesus to his death and dying along with him. Um, I never get tired of this quote. You guys might, because you might hear me quote it all the time. I love the radical way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it. He says, when Jesus bids a man come, he bids him come and die. I think, I think a lot of times we want him to say, when Jesus bids a man come, he bids him come and be very comfortable. But the, the, but the, but the call is stronger than that. See, here's the disappointment. The disciples hear this call to die and they say, no, they have something else in mind. They have a better plan, something very different. Jesus, hear us out. In verse 21, James and John, by means of their mother, come to Jesus to make this request. Uh, They've they've clearly been talking. They've been discussing and scheming. and, And their plan and their mother's plan is to ask Jesus for something audacious. They want to be Jesus's right and left-hand men. They want the seats of honor. They don't understand that. Yes, Jesus is a king, but the path of the king runs through the cross. Without the cross, without the sacrifice, there's no such thing as Jesus the king. This happened two other times where at least where Jesus told them what's ahead and then Matthew showed us how the disciples failed to get it. The the theme that has started emerging over and over again is that the disciples of Jesus seem to see what they're called to, and they hate it. They don't want that thing. They want something easy. They want something pain-free. They want something that puts them at the center. What Jesus is talking about doesn't meet any of those criteria. One of my favorite Puritan writers, he's not such an easy writer to read, but the content is so rich, um, is John Owen. And um, we re- I regard him very highly today. I think a lot, most of us regard him very highly, at least those of us who know who he is. But he was content to serve. He was an example of this. When Owen was on his deathbed, he did a few things. One of them was he spoke to his friends about the excitement of getting to meet Jesus. But then he said this. And it was a tumultuous time in the church of England. Um, And Owen said this, he said, I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm. But while the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. While the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. See, what we see in Owen is His helplessness and his weariness as he thinks of a church that no longer has him. And Owen says, it's fine. I'm expendable. It's not my church. And Jesus tells these men very graciously, you don't know what you're asking. It's it's easy to always be hard on the disciples. But ask yourself this question. Why are you doing this? What drives you in the Christian life? What is the fuel that goes into your tank that moves you forward every day? For nearly every Christian, I think the honest answer is some combination of motives and habits, some noble, some less than noble. Um, But Christian, what is your food? What is your fuel? What is your main driver? What is it that lights your fire, moves you forward and gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it, is it about you and something that you get out of all of this? Or do you live so the world can see the greatness of his glory that you've seen and you've tasted and you want them to have it too? Many of us are not driven by a love for God's glory. I know. <clears throat> Give me a moment. <coughs> you now I sound so much better. Um, I know a pastor and not me who years ago was approached by a prospective church member. This was somebody visiting the church. They'd come a few times. And this church member wanted this pastor to know that he wanted to be an elder. The problem was this church member was, a, was new to the Christian faith. He had a lot of growing to do. And just, it was just simply obvious that he wasn't ready to be a, a ruling elder in the church. And the pastor gave a, a gracious reply um, And told the man, while it's good to desire to be an elder, for now, you should keep striving for holiness and growth so that in the coming years you would be ready. Thank you. Thank you. Um, But the next week after he was told that, the man stopped coming to church and he never returned. Word got around that this man was visiting other churches until he could find one that would have him as an elder. For this man... If he couldn't be an elder in the church, he didn't want to go to church. If he couldn't be important, if he couldn't be at the center, then what was the point? Imagine the destruction of a church if that man actually had become an elder with that kind of mindset. It is a dangerous thing to desire some position of perceived honor and to be unwilling to hear someone say otherwise. And, and also to so badly misunderstand what Jesus will say. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Christians fall into this more easily than we might think. We, we don't notice it often. You know, we say it's not our church. We say it's Jesus's church. We've probably heard it so many times that it just kind of becomes old. But then how do we react when things don't go our way? I'm not saying that we shouldn't share our ideas and have ideas and and things like that. Um, But how might we react if we have an idea that we present to the the session or the congregation or whatever, and and they go in a different direction? Can we be at peace with this if if this is Jesus' church and not our church? The way we react tells us whether we think it's Jesus' church or our church. You see, that the temptation of James and John is very real. On one level, I think most of us who have been around the church for very long, we can relate to it on some level. Do you follow the Lord so that you can be made much of, or so that you can make much of him? Are you here to serve the church or do you see the church as a vehicle for your plans and your ideas, something ultimately to serve you? Christian, are you willing to be a John Owen? Are you willing to be an unknown under rower below deck or do you have to stand on the deck? We know the answer of James and John at this point in their lives. They're in it for the glory. They're in it for the power. They want to be on the deck. They want attention. And look, the... If you went to James and John, they would say something to you like this, I think. We would do good things with this power. We would do great things with this power. People who want power have good motivation out of their desire for control. I want to see the church blessed. But there's an erroneous assumption. I am the one who knows how that should happen. And before we even think of leading others, we have to ask ourselves a deep question that only really we and the Lord know the answer to. Have we fundamentally accepted the real position of a servant first? Because if we haven't made ourselves fundamentally to be servants, then we will start to take personal offense at things that aren't supposed to be about us in the first place. Uh, We start expecting things to gravitate around us and wondering why they don't. These are warning signs that we have lost the servant's heart. I need to be reminded of that as a pastor. Somebody recently asked me, how do you like doing two services? You know, this was my idea. You would think that I would say, oh, it's great. But it is very hard preaching a bad sermon twice. <laughs> That's not me fishing for everybody telling me they like the sermons. Whenever I say that, everyone's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but. But it's, you know what? It's very easy to say that that sermon that flopped, that's about me. So, so this is me preaching to myself, right? <laughs> that motion I made that didn't pass, it's not about me. That sermon that flopped, is not about me. That idea I had that totally flopped, it's not about me. Um, that church member, not very impressed with that idea I had, not about me, right? I, as a pastor, need this reminder to look at James and John and learn from them. And not just me, all of us. Our elders need to be reminded of that. Our deacons need to be reminded of that. Not about me, not about me, not about me. Our educational ministry teams need to hear that. Every member, every visitor needs to hear that. Jesus isn't just saying these things to pass the time. He's saying them because we need them. He's afraid for a church where everyone wants to have their feet washed by everyone else. He's afraid for a church that lacks a servant's heart. If you don't fundamentally see yourself as a servant here for others, then you are a James or a John in the making, and you haven't grasped the lesson that they needed to learn. You do not know what you're asking. This is Jesus' church. For this to be your church, you don't know what you are asking. It's not my church or your church. It can't be. We're here for Him, we're all expendable. And we're here for others. And if we are not guided by that outward facing service, and if we're always thinking about ourselves in here, then we are more driven by our egos than we realize. And if we were to be placed in that position of authority that we want so badly, we would be as destructive as a bull in a China shop. These brothers are standing in the presence of this man who is servant to all who's about to lay it all in the line, and all they can think is, how can I steer things so they go my way? We need to be warned by this resistance that we see in James and John. It's not unique to them. The third point today is the way. So having shown them the end and having confronted the resistance of their hearts He points them in the direction of himself. I want to read verses 24 to 27 again. It says, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So Jesus tells these men, they aren't thinking like disciples at all. They are thinking like the secular, godless, Greek Roman rulers that they see in the empire around them. You guys are thinking like godless, power hungry Gentiles. And when Jesus says it shall not be so among you, he is banning his people from ruling in that way. (coughs) My own instinct is to love being served by others. I have to tell you, um, I love being served. Many years ago. When we lived in Phoenix, Aaron and I were attending a pretty large non-denominational church. And the church was big enough that we would show up on Sundays and things would just work. The staff would just be there at the Sunday school rooms. People would just be there to greet at the door. People just were working in the coffee shops. Um, Everything just worked. It was like a mini mall. They had a bookstore where somebody had to run the cash register. Um, I mean, it was crazy. And it was very comfortable. Most comfortable church I've ever been in. They never asked anything of me. And, And I can't speak for my wife, but my favorite part was that nobody ever noticed us, nobody ever talked to us, nobody ever asked things of us. We would get all the stuff from attending the church and nothing was ever requested of us. No one even asked me my name. We never had to serve. And they had something for every felt need that we could possibly have. And on the one hand, it felt great to go somewhere, but they never ask anything of you and they give you so much. Secretly, we kind of enjoyed the fact that nobody even noticed us. But what I didn't know at the time, and I just I just never saw it, is that by by going there and doing that and living that way and having that attitude, we were being robbed. We were robbing the church, but we were robbing ourselves because we were missing out on the chance to be useful to the people of God. We were missing opportunities to bless God's people with our gifts and our presence we missed out on the chance to be something to the body of Christ and make an impact in a way that we were needed. The problem is not necessarily with the large church. The large church gives the opportunity for the movement that's already in your heart. Um, we were there for what we could get from the church, and then we let everyone else do the serving. We lived like consumers and forgot that Jesus called us to service as Christians. Instead of running from our calling, we should have embraced it. I think naturally all of us like the secular approach be served and serve nobody. That's just, that's just baked into our DNA. And that is because deep down we have a war going on within us between what, is, what it is that pleases God and what it is that pleases our sinful nature. And Jesus says that's unacceptable. He he bans us from that way of thinking. He says, it shall not be so among you. He came in and followed his mission and, and found his meaning in being poured out. And he kept being poured out. And instead of asking, is this work fulfilling to me? He said, I'll empty myself. Instead of wondering why those around him weren't satisfying his felt needs, Jesus said, I'll give of myself more. This does not come naturally to us, does it? So we might come to church as consumers. That's one way we make the church all about ourselves is just to come and consume. We don't want to work, um, but we actually, we actually don't want to give either. And um, uh, that's one way that we make the church all about ourselves is we come as consumers But the other way we we make the church all about ourselves is that we seek to be influential in the church and tell ourselves, see, I'm here to serve. I have a servant's heart. And yet in our leadership, we might lord it over others like the secular rulers. What a temptation. That's another way of making church all about us. It is possible to serve in a way that somehow still manages to make things all about us. And that is dangerous for those of us who already lead in the church. We need to have Jesus put before us afresh. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't just come. If you are his child, then he came for you as a ransom for you. This word many is, 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 is many individuals. He came to rescue you from your sins and and the call to you. And the call to me is the same. He calls us to come and die too. And you know what? Once we die to ourselves like he did, once the Lord puts that old man and his old ways and his old priorities in the ground with Jesus, we can serve in any way that we're needed. We can do anything because a dead man has nothing to lose. A dead man isn't missing out on anything. Will you die? Will you die? Before Jesus was ever crucified, he'd already died. He looked Poor Jerusalem, and he set his face like flint, and he calls us to live the Christian life in the same way. Are you dead yet? Paul says in Romans 6, we should reckon ourselves dead with Christ. Are you dead yet? Jesus points us to the way, and the way is the way of self-sacrifice and death. When Jesus bids us come, he bids us come and die. <clears throat> Jesus was able to be crucified because he had already died. He died to himself. He died to his human desires. And Christ calls us to die. But he plunges into the darkness ahead of us first. At the end of Mark's telling of today's passage, I want you to hear what Mark adds. He he says, and they they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And Bonhoeffer goes on to say this in closing. As if to bring home to them how serious was his call, to show them how impossible it was to follow in their own strength, and to emphasize that adherence to him means persecution. Jesus goes on before to Jerusalem and to the cross, and they are filled with fear And amazement at the road he calls them to follow. Let's pray together. Oh God, you know the war that is happening in our hearts. You know how easy it is for us to demand our way and want others to serve us. But help us not to rob ourselves or you or your church. Help us to die to ourselves in your son so that we can bless your people and live the life of sacrificial love that you modeled for us. Help us to do it, O God, in the name of your son and through his power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.